Thanks, David. Appreciate it. Good morning, church. It's good to see you. Uh, For those of you who don't know, my name is Jared. I have the privilege of uh, teaching through God's Word this morning. We are in Matthew's Gospel, uh, chapter 4. There's black Bibles around the room. If you don't own a Bible, the the Bible closest to you, the black Bible in the room, is now yours. Write your name in it. Take it home with you. Uh, No obligation, no strings attached. It's our gift to you. We want you to have God's Word. If you uh, would turn to uh, Matthew chapter 4, we're going to be in verses 12 through... uh, 17 this morning. I'm just going to kind of, I'm going to get right after it today. Um, it's funny, I've actually written, uh, I wrote a sermon earlier in the week, and then around Friday I was like, man, this is not quite right. So uh, kind of went back to the drawing board and wrote a new message on Friday afternoon and kind of polished it a bit yesterday. And so there, there might be a little bit of both coming out of me, but I'm going to try to make this concise. Uh, there is just a lot going on in a simple uh, just series of uh, verses here. And so um, I, I want us to read this, and then I'll just kind of give us a big picture idea of, of where we're going here. This is God's word, Matthew chapter 4, uh, verses 12 through 17. Now, when he, Jesus, heard that John the Baptist had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee and leaving Nazareth. So Nazareth is uh, kind of in the uh, North central Israel. Jerusalem is like the hotbed of Israel, right in um, central Israel. Israel is kind of a long uh, shape, almost like Idaho in some ways. Um, Jesus would leave Nazareth and he would move up, the text says, to this town named Capernaum, which is by the sea. It was a lake town, much like Coeur d'Alene, right on the, board, uh, on the Sea of Galilee here. This was in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. These were two of Jacob's sons or Israel's sons who were tribes in Israel. And so these were their territories in the northern part of of Israel. And Matthew connects it in verse 14. He says, so that Jesus moved there so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And so then he reaches back seven centuries into the Old Testament to this major prophet named Isaiah who wrote this in Isaiah uh, verses, uh, chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, this way of the sea beyond the Jordan River, it's Galilee of the Gentiles, and that can also be translated Galilee of the nations. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Now, verse 17, from that time, from the time of his move up to Capernaum on the, on the Sea of Galilee, the edge of the Sea of Galilee, Jesus began to preach or proclaim or herald. This is the beginning of his public ministry here. And what was his message? His message is, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the exact same message that John the baptizer was preaching just a few verses ago. Word for word, the exact same message here. Father, would you open your word to us? 
Would you help us to understand it? Would it not be abstract knowledge that just stays kind of in the head zone of our lives? But uh, would you, in your sovereignty and by your spirit, would you work it down into uh, the, 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 the angles and the contours and the textures of our own hearts and lives and show us how we live in light of Jesus' message to repent because your kingdom is near or your kingdom is at hand. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jesus, he steps uh, onto the pages of Israel's history after a really long period of silence. The prophets have been silent in Israel for a period of about 400 years. And so the people of Israel at the time of Jesus have been waiting like 400 years for God to speak again. He's been the speaking God. He's been the one who was there. He's been revealing himself to Israel, but they're waiting at the time of Jesus for him to speak again. All throughout history, Israel has been waiting on God to speak, waiting on him to reveal himself and to show them the way. And so this is why Matthew continually is reaching back into the Old Testament and he is, by doing so, he's trying to show these, his modern, his, his audience, mostly Jews who had converted to f- become followers of Jesus. He's trying to show them how Jesus is this long-awaited Messiah. He's the promised deliverer. Now, Israel's wait began on the third page, essentially, of our Bibles in Genesis chapter 3. Uh, at the in the garden, uh, Adam and Eve uh, were created, formed by God, um, given all that they needed, not just to survive but to flourish. They were walking with God in direct relationship with Him. He gave them a command not to eat of one particular tree. Um, they went against Him. They took control of their own lives in that moment, and God would expel them from the garden. He was just in doing so, but he remained available to them and he did not abandon his people, although the way that they would relate to one another would shift significantly because sin and Satan, as we saw last week, as Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, sin and Satan had become a wedge between God and his people. And so Israel's story in the Bible It's a story of the people of God both waiting on him, but also wandering away from him. How does that describe your relationship with God? Like, it's this constant push and pull, is it not? Where we're waiting on him and we know that he's near, and then it's like we wander off and then we come back and we wander off and we come. That is the Christian life, FYI. If you have signed up to follow Jesus, uh, that, is, that, that describes the, the most holy saint that you know in this life. If they're being honest, that describes their walk with God. It's one of waiting on him, high times, and one of wandering away from him, low times. Beginning on page one of our Bibles uh, and lasting to the very end of the age, God has been, this is so important, and this is going to really like form where we're going this morning. God has been the king who loves his people. 
So what we're going to do this morning as we see in Matthew's gospel where Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's where I am going to spend the majority of my time. There is going to, there, there is backstory around Isaiah and around what was going on in Israel. And that was kind of what my first sermon was about, just unpacking a lot of the history. But I really want to land with clarification on what the kingdom of God is. So I'm going to help us come to a definition, a clear one of what the kingdom of God is. And then I'm going to, um, by God's grace, the Holy Spirit in you is going to make my words clear, hopefully, and, uh, and we're going to come to an understanding of how, um, how the kingdom of God um, comes to bear on our lives, the stuff of our everyday lives. So that's what we're going to do, but I'm going to do a, b- a bit of kind of unpacking, showing how God has been, he's always been the king who loves his people. It's from his love that he reigns over his creation, and he is at work, though we have wandered, he is at work redirecting us, restoring us, and reunifying us. To live as a citizen in any kingdom, both the kingdom of, uh, of man or within the kingdom of God, it means that we have to live within boundaries. Any kingdom uh, has with it an ethic, a system by which people live. It has rule of law. Uh, it has benefits for the citizens of the kingdom. But every kingdom also has responsibilities that come to bear on citizens of the kingdom as well. To reject a king, is to essentially put ourselves outside of the kingdom. But to live within a kingdom's boundaries or a king's boundaries is to live as a legitimate citizen. So we live according to the ethics. We live according to the rule of law. We live and we, we receive benefits and we also have responsibilities. Now, I want to show a little bit of the backstory of the nation of of Israel and and God's kingship over Israel. The nation of Israel, this ancient people in the Middle East that God called to himself, they are sometimes referred to in the Old Testament, the, the entire nation, all of them together, hundreds of thousands of them, are referred to as God's son. Israel as a nation is referred to as God's son. For example, uh, um, Exodus chapter 4, verses 22 and 23, um, God is speaking through Moses. Moses is going to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and, he's, and Moses is on behalf of God saying, let my people go. You might have heard that you know, the song or whatever in Sunday school, the phrase, let my people go. This is what God says verbatim in Exodus 4, 22. He says, Let my son, speaking of all of the people, let my son go that he may serve me. Israel is my firstborn son. That's what he says verbatim. God is saying this to Pharaoh through Moses about all of the people. Israel is the son or the outcome of God's promise. God's promise was first given and and realized in explicit form to a man named Abraham in our Old Testaments. He kind of first arrives on the scene in Genesis 12. Um, Out of nowhere, God speaks to Abraham. Abraham is the first Hebrew. He's the first Jew. There was no nation of Israel. There there were no Jews before Abraham. God spoke to him. 
and, and told Abraham, though he had some wealth, um, he was married, he had servants, he had livestock, God told him to leave his country, to leave his homeland, and to go to a land that God would show him. And Abraham believed God, and God credited that to Abraham as righteousness. And so Abraham goes out, and he just begins following the voice and the presence of the Lord. God was appearing to him in such a powerful way that he knew that he was there, and he knew that he was near. Now, God had given Abraham this promise, but Abraham and his wife couldn't have kids. God said, I'll make you the father of many nations, but they couldn't have kids. And so time progresses and decades go by and they still can't have kids. And Abraham and his wife, Sarah, are in their 90s. The Bible says, as good as dead. (laughs) There's no chance these two, according to human terms, are going to have a baby together. And yet God delivers through, get this, a miraculous birth. Does that sound like something that we've read in Matthew's gospel regarding Jesus? Through a miraculous birth, God provides a son of promise. This son of promise is named Isaac. Isaac gets married, and he and his wife have a baby. This baby is named Jacob. So now Abraham has a grandson. His grandson's name is Jacob. Jacob is a wily dude. His name means deceiver. He's all over the board. He's shady on every level. God is faithful to his granddad Abraham and his dad Isaac, and he continues to work with Jacob. And midway through Jacob's life, he begins to really contend with God, and God calls him on the carpet has a bit of a wrestling match with him, overpowers him, overpowers Jacob's will. And as he overpowers Jacob's will, he gives him a new name. What does he name Jacob? He names him Israel. So this man named Jacob gets a new name, Israel. He's married to a woman named Rachel. He and Rachel have 12 children, 12 sons, These 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. So these 12 sons end up having families of their own. These families grow. These families grow into tribes. This tribe grows into a great nation. And eventually this great nation becomes a kingdom ruled by kings. So that's the story kind of in a nutshell of of Israel. Now, when God spoke and contended with, uh, with Jacob and renamed him Israel, God said to him, he said this in Exodus 35, 11, and 12. He said, I am God Almighty. Okay, all right, we're going to determine the relationship, define the relationship. I guess you're Almighty. That means that, that Jacob, renamed Israel, is not. God said to him, I'm God Almighty. So God rules, God reigns. That's the point he's trying to make there. He gives Israel a command, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations will come from you. Kings will come out of your own body, which means that God will rule. He reigns, but he'll also rule through Jacob, renamed Israel. He goes on to say, the land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, so your granddad and your, and your father, I will give to you, and I will give this land to your offspring after you. So God reigns. God will reign through Israel and through his offspring, and God will reign over the land also through him. So nations and kings would come out of this man, Israel and out of his sons who grow into large families, tribes, a nation, and eventually a kingdom. Now, remember this. This is why all that history matters. 
God is the creator king who loves his people. God is the creator king who loves and pursues his people. He would pursue this nation of Israel as there are a whole bunch of people now. They were going to wander off from him like you and I do on a consistent basis. And so God would provide for them prophets. And the prophets would say, remember God, thus says the Lord, repent. And they would call the nation of Israel back to remember God. He would give them as well judges. And the judges in the nation of Israel would would help rule Israel. They would help give the people an ethic to live by, to relate to one another. God would also give the people priests. So as the prophets are calling the people to remember God and the judges are teaching them to live with one another, they recognize their sin nature. They recognize that they are, they are, they, there's a wedge between them and God. He would give them priests who would mediate between God and men and, and, and show them the way to find atonement or at one with God. And so the priests would, uh, would, would help to mediate these people's relationship, this nation's relationship with God. But God would also give them kings. He would also give them kings. Now, kings are interesting in the Bible because this was not God's idea. God is the king of Israel who loves his people. But the people of Israel are always, they've always got the wandering eye at the nations around them, and they become jealous of the nations around them. And as they're jealous of these nations around them, the nations around them have kings. And Israel says, give us a king who will rule over us. They've got kings. We want a king. And they they say this to a prophet at the time, Samuel. You can read about this in 1 Samuel. Samuel is grieved at it. He, he says, you guys don't want this. He brings that God is your king. He brings this before the Lord. And the Lord says, they haven't rejected you, Samuel. They've rejected me. Give them what they want, but warn them first. Warn them. And if they don't relent, if they still want their demands, then give them a king. But warn them that the kings that they get will rule over them, will take their sons and daughters, will take their wealth, will take their livestock, and it won't be good for them. The people demand, give us a king. And so God gives them their wish after significant warning. The first king that Israel gets, the first human king, was a man named Saul. Saul would rule, this is about 1,000 B.C., 1,000 years before Christ, 10 centuries. Saul would rule over the nation of Israel. He'd start out well. He'd end up ruling unrighteously, unjustly, and God would judge him severely. God actually would rip the kingship away from Saul out of his family line, and he would give it to another family. The second king that God would establish this human kingdom of Israel through was born in a town you may have heard of, Bethlehem. The Lord, listen to this in 1 Samuel 16, 1. The Lord said to the prophet Samuel, how long are you going to grieve over Saul since I've rejected him from being king over Israel? He didn't lead according to God's statutes. God would say through Samuel, or to Samuel rather, go, I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I've provided for myself a king among his sons. Jesse's son would be this newly anointed king. What was his name? David. This new, the second king of Israel was born where? In Bethlehem. Interesting. This is significant. David was known as a man after God's own heart. 
That was kind of like the banner at the end of the day that would wave over David's life. And if you know anything about King David's life, it was full of obedience and gross disobedience. He was constantly falling on his face, doing stuff that nobody in this room has done before, because if you had, you'd be in prison. Yet, God continued to turn his heart back to himself and humble David. And David was known as a man after God's own heart. This is significant. So just tuck that away. I'm going to come back to it at the very end. Just tuck that away. Now, um, God would give later in David's life, this king over Israel, God would give him a sort of double prophecy. A double prophecy is one that comes to fruition here and now in your present day, but also has far-reaching future implications, okay? So he gives him this double prophecy in, in uh, first, uh, 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 16. And he essentially says to David, "Your kingdom, I will establish the throne of your kingdom forever. You will have a son who will reign on the throne. David did have a son. His name was Solomon. The, king, uh, the kingly line of David continued, but, but it's a messianic psalm in that God was speaking far out into the future about a future king who would come whose kingdom would have no end at all. Now, at this point, we're going back into the Gospel of Matthew, and we're going to stay in the Gospel of Matthew. Go to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 says what? Okay, the book of the genealogy of Jesus, the book of the Genesis of Jesus. Who is he? The son of David, the son of Abraham. I've just talked about these two guys, David and Abraham. Matthew is connecting these dots for the people that he's writing to in his gospel. That Jesus is the son of Abraham means that Jesus is a true Hebrew. He's a true Jew. He's from the house and the lineage of the very first one, the man of Abraham. And not only that, but Jesus is the son of David. He is the son whose throne would be established and whose kingdom would reign forever. He's trying to teach the church that he's writing to, Matthew is, that Jesus is a true king here. He's the promised king whose kingdom would never end. Now, Americans halfway understand kings. Why? Because we have presidents. We have a new president-elect at this time now, so it is a, a, it's likely that he is a new president-elect, so it's time that God's people humbled themselves and prayed for him and his administration. The Lord would humble him and his administration, and that the Lord would humble our current administration and cause them, all of them, to seek God. I was reminded this morning, actually, uh, I saw, this is a bit of an aside, but um, I got an email um, just through a, a, it's called Medium. It's a like a big, huge blog platform where all kinds of writers write in about all kinds of things, and you can kind of tailor it. <clears throat> well, I saw Barack Obama's statement <clears throat> celebrating um, uh, Joe Biden's president-electness, and, uh, and it was like a two-minute read. That was really good, really, really, really good. I, I appreciated his words. And one thing that that Obama said, and 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 I, I like, I like uh, something just came out of me out loud. Uh, did I call him President Obama, former President Obama? Um, one thing that he wrote was, rem "We need to remember that we are a nation, comma, under God." I was grateful for that. 
really grateful for that. Because whether it means political posturing or not, it's true. The United States is one nation under God. But we don't understand kingship very well because we live under a president. So I'm going to just give us a little understanding of what, pre- what the differences are between kings and presidents. Presidents preside. Presidents preside. And what they, they, they are essentially executives who have an administration and they have teams of people who are meant to carry out the will of the people. So our nation is founded by the people, for the people, of the people. The people direct the values of America. We are a democratic republic. And so what we do is we elect representatives to represent our values at the highest level of government, and then the president and his administration's job and the job of Congress and the Senate is, and the House is to enact our will. It's way different than a kingdom. Uh, we, we're super familiar with this, too, with the electoral system, because the way the electoral system works is um, based on the population in a state, um, we have a number of representatives, and those number of representatives get represented by votes in the electoral college. The state of Idaho has four of them. It's based on our population, and so we, as we vote in the state of Idaho, those four um, electoral representatives will then go and cast their vote, showing the wishes of the people. It's way different than the way a kingdom works. Kings don't preside, kings rule. Kings decree. Citizens don't drive the values of a kingdom. The king drives the value within a kingdom. And a king inherits his position from his family line. A king has a son. When that king dies, the son rises to the throne. When that son dies, another son rises to the throne, on and on and on. The only way a king, a king gets unseated is by death, whether it's natural or whether it's assassination. Uh, we vote our presidents out or in every four years. That's not how it works with kings. When we think of kings who rule, absolutely, what we're thinking of is an ab, what's called an absolute monarchy. A kingdom is a monarchy, and a kingdom always has a king or a queen at the very center of it. The king rules and reigns. Now, these kings can be dignified, honorable leaders, just leaders who lead their people with generosity, who lead their people in justice, who lead their people mercifully. But kings can also be very undignified leaders who lead their people with cruelty, who lead their people with fear, who lead their people out of their selfishness. Unjust kings are undignified, and unjust kings rob their people of dignity. But here's what God's word teaches us. Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus Christ is the dignified Messiah King. He's the son of God. And Jesus comes first as Messiah. That's what a Messiah rescues. He comes first to rescue and then to rule. And this dignified Messiah King, Jesus of Nazareth, rules with power, he rules with authority, he rules with gentleness, he rules with mercy, he rules with justice, and he rules with generosity. And Jesus has come now saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
to inaugurate a new age where his rule over humanity, his rule over creation would come unexpectedly and would come to Israel in new ways. They just didn't see it coming. This proclamation of Jesus' kingdom would begin as an invitation in a very unexpected place, Galilee of the Gentiles. The Jews expected the king to come in power in the hotbed of Israel, the seat of power in the city of Jerusalem, but Jesus comes in Galilee of the Gentiles, which is on the northern reaches of Israel, on the borderlands of Israel. And so what has happened, there's Tyre and Sidon above Israel. And what has happened is these nations around the Gentiles have kind of trickled into the land of Israel. And so Jews are living there and Gentiles, a Gentile is anyone who is not a Jew or a Hebrew, um, Jews and Gentiles are living there together. It's a melting pot this area. And it's not just like desolate farmland. It's a pre, it's a teeming area. There's people and villages all over the place. And so there are lots of people. And we'll see that in Matthew's gospel as the crowds just continue to gather around Jesus and to follow him. This is where his words come. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so here's what I want to do for the remainder of our time. I want to define the kingdom of heaven what it means, and then I also want to apply it uh, to our own lives. The kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God are the same thing. We read kingdom of heaven. It's unique in Matthew's gospel. The other um, synoptics, Mark and Luke, and also John, when they refer to the kingdom, they typically refer to it as the kingdom of God because their audiences aren't primarily Jewish audiences. Matthew's audience is a primarily Jewish audience, and so Jews don't say the name God, the title God. They don't use God's personal name. Even Jews, uh, devout Jews to this day, when they write the word God, they'll write G slash D. They never write his title or his name. It's a sign of reverence. And so Matthew is using this phrase, kingdom of heaven, as a way to talk about the kingdom of God without offending his people. He's being a, a good contextualizer here. He's understanding the language and the norms and the culture of the people, and he does not want to place an unnecessary roadblock in their way or distraction in their way. And so he refers to the kingdom of God as the kingdom of heaven. Now, here's how we'll define the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God in one sentence. I've got eight words for you. It'll be up on the screen. The kingdom of heaven is God's reign through God's people, over God's place. This is going to be up on the screen for the remainder of our time mostly. The kingdom of God is God's reign through God's people over God's place. We're going to break this down in three parts. God's reign through God, God, God ruling and reigning through his people and then over his place. Here's what we need to know about his reign. The kingdom of God begins, continues, and ends with the king. Even the name kingdom, um, the etymology of this word is kingdom. It's king's dominion. A kingdom is where a king dominates, where his dominion is. The kingdom and its culture emanate from the king. Like I said earlier, a kingdom has ethics, a kingdom has a rule of law, a kingdom has benefits for citizens, a kingdom has uh, responsibilities on citizens, yet the king is central. The king is central. If you don't have a king, you don't really have ever a strong kingdom. It's the king who rules. So when Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he's making a statement about God's kingship. The king 
is the point. The king is at center. A man named Jeremy Treat says it like this. The kingdom of God, here's what it is. It's a vision of the world that is reordered around the powerful love of God in Christ. That's what the kingdom of God is about. Now, either whether you say kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God, it's directional. It's not the kingdom of man, it's the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, meaning that the kingdom comes from heaven. The kingdom comes from God's dwelling place. The kingdom emanates from God himself. It comes to us. Typically, kings rule over people, but what's really distinct about God and about his kingship is that he rules, yes, over people, but he rules through his people. God rules through his people. He reigns through his people over his place. In Genesis 1, God created all things. He made Adam and his wife Eve. He placed them in a garden paradise to rule over that paradise under God's rule. Remember what I said about the United States. One nation under God. That means under God's rule. So even those who wrote the Pledge of Allegiance have acknowledged that the United States is under God. God ruled over his creation as he created Adam. He ruled over his creation through Adam. In Genesis chapter 3, as Adam and Eve walked away from God, rebelled against him, God's reign shifted from directing man out of a place of relational intimacy, a place of relational closeness and harmony. The way that, that God would relate to humanity would shift to back to renewing, to, to renewing man back to, back into harmony. So we go astray out of the garden. God stays with us and redirects his people over time. God the king is always intended to reign through his people. But now his people, us, like David said this morning, are, uh, are, are broken and we are alienated from him. And so his attention shifts to reunification. His attention and his relational attention to his people shifts to restoration. The point is this, the God king pursues. That's the point from Genesis 1. God is king and he pursues his people. He does not abandon his people, though we, what, abandon him. Right? On a regular basis, we're wanderers. He reigns over his people, but he reigns through his people. And so for us to consider what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, it means that God becomes the center of who we are. We order our life around the king if we are members of the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. His rule, this means that his rule is comprehensively growing over every aspect of our life, or it should be. Jeremy Treat, again, a pastor in L.A., he says, to be saved into the kingdom means a new life. It means a new identity. It means a new kingdom for those who consider themselves citizens of God's kingdom. The kingdom of God is that God reigns. He defines the relationship. He reigns through his people, and God reigns over his place. Um, the Bible, from beginning to end, Genesis to Revelation, it tells the good news of the God of all grace who created grace's unmerited favor. He just created us to love us. He didn't create us because he needed our love. 
He created us because he wanted us and he wanted to love us and he wanted to bestow his blessing on people. And so when you are a creator type, you just got to get something out of you, don't you? You just got to create because you love to create. And he is the creator king who created us in a paradise garden. And he promises that he will live with us, reign with us forever in a paradise city. It's described in the end of your Bibles in Revelation as the new Jerusalem. The word Jerusalem means city of peace. What this means is that God is going to reign with his people forever where you can't get any better. It is as good as it could possibly be for you, but you're not the point. The point is the king of the kingdom, and we are in his presence, worshiping him, relating to one another as we were intended to. Though we've been faithless, God remains faithful. He can't deny himself. He doesn't deny himself. Now, the reign of God, it does have a physical location. There's a whole theology behind this that we can't even begin to get into this morning, and so we won't. But God created man and woman in Eden. Um, He expelled them from the garden, but he remained with them, and he promised a land to them where they would live and where they would be. And it became the nation of Israel. Jerusalem is a center point of this promised land. What began very good in Eden will begin and continue very good in this, in this new city, this new Jerusalem, and this new age. The point is, is that God is going to renew all of his creation. That's what the Bible teaches, that God is not just going to, he, he's not just in the work of renewing humanity, but he's actually going to renew creation. He's going to create, renew earth. He's going to renew the world that we live in. And he is going to bring it all to pass through primarily his spiritual work of renewal and his people. That's his main aim. And then the creation will follow. Now, uh, okay, like all this backstory, Jared, all this information, great, cool. Like I can see that God has been the creator king, that Jesus is this promised king to come. He's from the line of David. But how in the world does the kingdom of God come home to the stuff of my everyday life? Like how, how, do, I, how do I live as a citizen in the kingdom? Here's how. One way, a primary way, according to Jesus, it's through remembering and practicing the first word of his first sermon. What was the first word of his first sermon? Repent. It's through repentance. Now, don't put up your walls as I start to talk about repentance. It's not what you think it is. It's not necessarily, I'll say it that way, it's not necessarily what you think it is. Entering the kingdom of God, it has a prerequisite for people. And the prerequisite to entering the kingdom of God is there can be no personal kingdoms. That is one prerequisite. And so the act of repentance is to deny ourselves. It's to deny our personal kingdoms and to say, now I have a new allegiance. My allegiance is not primarily to me. You do you, whatever makes you happy. My, there, there is now an allegiance that supersedes me, that supersedes self. 
and that allegiance is to my creator king. And so this Messiah king, Jesus, comes to us, and the first word is repent. Repentance is always the gateway to the kingdom of God. We repent one time, the very first time, and we, we, we see our sinfulness, and we see God's holiness, and we, and we say, I see it. I see what it is. I see that you're holy. I see that I'm sinful. I see that you want me. I see that I can be a part of your kingdom. And so I am going to deny myself and I'm going to accept the truth that you present to me. We repent that one time to get into the family of God, to get into the kingdom of God. It's called justification. It's instant. It's complete. It can never be revoked. From that day, you are sealed forever with the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of your inheritance until you acquire possession of it, according to the Apostle Paul. That's justification. But we practice ongoing repentance, not so that we will be accepted into the family of God, but so that we grow continually in the family of God. This is called sanctification. It's the process of becoming more and more and more holy. The Holy Spirit works within us, renewing us day by day. And it's from this kind of open-heartedness to God that his kingdom will spread and stretch throughout who I am and who you are and not only who I am and who you are, but also will spread and stretch out throughout humanity, over the globe, through his grateful, repentant people, over the entire creation. His representatives, his image bearers, those who bear the name of Christ, are spreading out over the entire world, filling the earth with his glory. The glory of the Lord will saturate the earth as the waters cover the sea. Repentance does not mean self-punishment. Get that out of your head, please. Finally and fully. Repentance does not mean beating yourself up until you feel like, I've kind of punished myself enough, now I can come back into God's presence. That is not what repentance means. To repent is to embrace the grace of God aimed at you. To repent is to run to him, saying, I can't do it. I'm way out on my own. Heal me. Restore me, empower me, forgive me, help me. Whatever the words that you have are in that moment. Repentance is two steps forward. Repentance is never two steps back. Every occasion of our relent. I'm going to use a different word. Every occasion where we relent. He's showing us something. We have a sense of how we're to live um, and, and relate to him or relate to the people around us according to how he would have us relate to them. Every occasion where we relent before God is a moment where his rule and his reign more comprehensively rewrites and renews my identity and yours. The kingdom of God expands through his disciples who are, disciple means a learner or an apprentice. The kingdom of God expands through disciples who are apprenticing ourselves to King Jesus and attaching ourselves to King Jesus. And so I want to ask this question Who is the center of your story? Who is the hero within your story? Are you 
the hero of your story. You discovered God and you figured it out and you got there and you cleaned up your life and you're a pretty good person and you vote right and you do the things right. Are you the hero of your story or has the hero of your story changed and shifted and there's a new hero at the center of your life who is not you but who is rightfully in his place king jesus he's the king of your life he's the king of your family he's the king of your business he's the king of your decision making he's the king of your money habits he's the king of your parenting he's the king of your study he's the king of your school he's the king of your relationships he's the king at the center he's the sun that the solar system revolves around I want to tell just a, a, a briefly my uh, story, and it's very brief. Uh, growing up, um, some of you may know this, uh, some of you may not. Um, I, I grew up in the church, and I saw Jesus as a good um, but distant God, um, and more or, less, more or less a sort of legalistic uh, kind of God who was more interested in constraining my behavior than in actually um, wanting me or loving me for me. It's just the way I saw him. Uh, I didn't uh, see how my interests could ever be looked upon with favor by God. I just didn't see it. And I grew up in the church, and so here I find myself as a pastor in my 40s, and I, I never thought that would happen because I saw, my, I saw pastor types in my life as, uh, as weak. Um, I saw them as way, way too straight-laced and naive to have real fun, as I defined it as an ultra-wise 15-year-old. I was driven by my need to stand out from the crowd. It's been a major driver of my life. And this led to abandoning God and abandoning his church family at 15 years old. And so um, I just launched out for a solid decade in pursuit of playing music, in pursuit of chasing girls, in pursuit of um, dealing drugs and doing drugs and essentially doing and putting my hands to whatever promised me pleasure. That's, I was a hedonist in the most pure kind of form of the word. That's what I wanted. And I found myself at 24 years old, totally exhausted, my tank on empty, all of the things that I had been in pursuit of for that solid decade had left me wanting and wanting and wanting and wanting, continually exhausted. And then in one weekend, through the invite of a friend at 24 years old, I was a chaperone of a youth retreat, like a ski retreat. This speaker was speaking to the, the youth group, but here I was, a 24-year-old 24, 24 dude on the margins of the room, and God was speaking through this man directly to my heart in a series of sermons over just a couple of days. And I saw the real Jesus in that moment. He wasn't a pansy. He wasn't somebody who was uninterested in me or interested in only caging me. But instead, I recognized that, that this Jesus was the king of all things, all creation. I recognized that he was holy. It, he was perfect. He was pure and that he wanted me in every ounce of my mess. The messed up guy with super, super messed up priorities. He wanted me. And I recognized that he gave his life, his clean life, his perfect life to make me clean. 
and he died on my behalf, and I recognized that he really, this historical Jesus, truly did rise from the dead to prove that he could do what he said he could do for me. And so I've been following here with some degree of, I've been following Jesus for some, uh, with some degree of consistency over the last 18 years. And I'm more grateful than ever to be in his service and to be a member of his family. And my heart is continually wandering. Continually. I talked about this a little bit last night. Like I can't get a grip on my discipline, it seems like lately. My heart is consistently wandering, but Jesus is consistently the king in pursuit. And just like he was on that very first weekend when I knew he was real at the youth retreat, and I'm coming to see that Jesus has been after my heart this entire time, my entire life, and that I don't first love him, but that he always and consistently first loves me, and he turns me around, and it's this one way it seems love from him that opens my heart back up to him, making my blind eyes see and bringing freedom to my wandering heart. That's just what I recognize as I, as I follow him. The kingdom of God is supreme in my life and, it, and supreme in many of our lives. The kingdom of God is God's reign through God's people over God's place. And here's how it will come to me continually. And here's how the kingdom of God will come to you. Here's how it's going to come. The kingdom of God will come home to you through your open-heartedness to the king. That's how it comes. The kingdom of God comes to bear, comes to invade, comes to take over more and more and more of your life through this, through our open-heartedness. You don't have to worry about God's place in this equation of what God's kingdom is. You don't even have to worry about that part. Don't even worry about it. He's just going to take care of it. Your work is to be his person. That's the, the series of choices before you and I. And so we have opportunity after opportunity after opportunity on a regular basis to say yes to him what he's impressing on us, what he's teaching us in moments where we don't want to and everything in our flesh just says, no, I don't want that. You know, like, I want to give whoever the bird or, you know, whatever it is. Like, we want our flesh in those moments, but our work is to be the person that he calls us to be. Our work is to say yes to him, to become a man or a woman after his own heart. Here's the part that I told you to tuck away, and here's where the sermon ends. David was known as a man after God's own heart. David was all over the place. He was a, 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 he was a worshiper and a sinner, simultaneously saint and sinner. He was a man after God's own heart, not because he always got life right, that actually has nothing to do with the occasion of why God said he was a man after his own heart, but because he kept coming back to God with an open and humble, teachable heart. That's where the designation came from. That was the practice. That was the continuum. That was the legacy of David's life. It's 
God, it's Jesus who created this humility in King David, and it's God who will create this humility in you. You can trust him, which means you can entrust yourself to him. He is the rightful king of everything. Yes? Father, we love you. We're in awe of you. You're the God who rules, the king who rules. Holy Spirit, the king of our heart. Jesus, you're the king of our lives. You're the king of kings. As we see on the first pages of Matthew, you're the king of the Jews. As you go up on your cross, that hangs over your head. They meant it as mockery, but it's your irony. At how you put Satan and sin and death to open shame. Before you and before your people. And so we see you not just lifted up on a cross, Jesus, but now having overcome death, lifted up to the right hand of the Father, reigning and ruling over everything, teaching your people to repent because you, the King, and your kingdom are at hand. We love you. We humble ourselves before you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.